We're going to dive in because we want a little bit of time in the back end for some more worship uh, conversations around communion. But for those of you who have not been here, here's a summation of what we have covered in the last four weeks. We have intentionally taken the four weeks of January to explore what it means to go deeper in our walk with Jesus. That's kind of our goal in all of this. We've done some great uh, spiritual discipline, com- intro some conversations. I'm sure some of you, hopefully most of you, are following John Mark and the Practicing the Way series that's online. Great videos and material resources that's available. But for us practically, as a community, how can we ensure with such diversity in the room and such different ages spiritually and those who've grown up in Christian homes and those who have never really experienced much at all. Um, What could it look like? So we took the four Sundays and we explored these four essential ingredients. Conviction, which Ty taught, and that's essentially creating a culture of inner integrity and authenticity in the eyes of the Lord. I'll read that to you again. It's creating a culture of inner integrity and authenticity in the eyes of the Lord. You know, it's a beautiful moment in the Old Testament or the earlier part of the scriptures where it said he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so we're looking at conviction, not in a nebulous uh, kind of I feel guilty way, but it's again something that's objective and eternal and lasts, and that's the love of God as expressed in the text. And so it's an inner integrity and authenticity. It's me being honest about who I really am, but in the eyes of the Lord. The second is confession. Confession, there we go. Confession is a culture of honesty and transparency in community. Guys and girls, we don't want to put together a great Sunday. I mean, I love this space. As you can see, I love the, the interaction and the family and the singing of songs and the opening up of the scriptures and announcing birthdays and weddings and all the great things that come. But, but there's a deeper and more wondrous component to the story. And that second piece is a culture of honesty and transparency in community. All of us who have grown up in a Western worldview struggle with spiritual narcissism i.e. our teaching has made me believe that I am the center of the conversation. In fact, I can reach full maturity by myself as if I were a hermit on an island. But that's not true to the text. The text gives us a perpetual, we'll see it again tonight, reference to the us-ness of our faith. And so confession is a culture of honesty and transparency in community. Someone needs to know what's knowable about you. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment, prepping for something I'm teaching in South Africa. Uh, I think it's from uh, Boys and Men or Men and Boys, I forget. And he was just giving some really interesting statistics, talking about pornography amongst the young. And, and, and he landed, this is not a Christian author, works for the Hoover Institute. He said, do you know, he asks the reader, that there are one million estimated prostitutes in America? Right now, guess how many priests and pastors there are in America right now? If there are a million prostitutes, how many priests and pastors do you think our 50 states have? Anyone has it a guess? We won't stone you for a wrong answer. 
260,000. A quarter of the number of prostitutes are the number of pastors and priests. So where's confession happening? Most even Christians live with the trauma of shame and guilt because confession has never been a high discipline in Protestantism. And I think part of the gift that John Mark and others are bringing back to our attention is the power and the wonder and the sublime freedom that comes with confession in community. doesn't mean that everyone knows everything, but in community, someone knows. Please hear me. I'm not talking about your mates at a pub having a beer or a couple of shots together and said, oh, geez, you know, I was on, on uh, Pornhub last night. That's not confession. That's arrogance. Confession is a broken heart. Uh, my soul is being stained by the images that I look at two to three, three times a week, according to data, at six minutes a time, which invariably leads to masturbation. Where do I confess dirty hands and an impure mind? Well, the scripture gives us that space right here in community where I value honesty and transparency. Consecration is the third track, if you wish. And it's the culture of surrender to being set apart for a divine assignment. They were consecrated to something. It's a culture of surrender. God, I give my all so that I can step into this adventure, that I will remain pure so that I can be married one day. I, I, I walk with, with, with um, uh, having to die daily, Paul says, to the things that I want to do, the things that I want to spend my money on. But because there's another assignment for me, and you are preparing me towards that end. Now, communion, which is what we're looking at tonight, for me, is a culture of three components, of historical remembrance. Jesus said, whenever you do this, remember. Of personal reflection, who am I around the table with Jesus? Am I the betrayer? Am I the denier? Am I the John hanging in his bosom at his every word with deep, intimate affection? Who am I at the table? It's historical remembrance, it's personal reflection, and then forgive this word, I just like it, the eschatological anticipation. It's the anticipation until he comes. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Jonah is going to come and read our text for us. Where are you, Jonah? Come on, dude. Um, can you use this mic? All right, buddy, here we go. This is crazy up here, this little... Hello? guys. Um, okay, I'm reading 1 Corinthians, where are we? 17 through 34. Chapter 11. Chapter, yep. Chapter 11, 30, or 17 through 34. But in the following instructions, I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent I believe it. But, of course, there must be divisions among you so, that you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? 
Do you, don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Do you, or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want, do you want me to, yeah, do you want me to praise you? Well, I will certainly not praise you for this, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the day that, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. But if we would examine ourselves when sorry, but if we would ex, but if yeah, if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we would not be condemned along with the world. So dear my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you are really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourself when you meet together. I'll give you instructions about the other matters and after I arrive. Fabulous, thank you. In chapter seven, in chapter seven it begins this unfolding, kind of frustratingly one-sided conversation. Paul has received a letter from this crazy church in a crazy city. And uh, he's answering it, deeply desiring to be there in person, no Zoom, no ability to kind of screen in to the community. And so he has to rely on a, the, the, the script and the scribe to be able to represent him. So whenever we read this, it's not the whole picture. Remember, he's answering the questions they asked. And it says in chapter 7, verse 1, Now concerning the matters you wrote about, and there are about four or five of them, it's not good for a man to have sexual relationships with a woman. And he goes on and spends time talking about marriage and intimacy and sexuality. And uh, it's an incredible treatise, if you wish. Answer. And remember, Corinth, Corinth was a bit like uh, we are here in Southern California, highly promiscuous, uh, validating and valuing a very godless life. And it was seeping its way into the church. Chapter 8. It says, now concerning food offered to idols, we were in Bali um, over Christmas, and uh, Meryl and I kind of did some zooting around, as did the rest of the fam, and you could not but be startled at these incredibly, incredible affection for idols on the island. When Stu teaches, I'm sure he'll tell you of an incident that had a direct effect on us and our stay there. But idolatry is not, and there they have what the second largest idol in the world uh, Monument, okay. But it's overwhelmingly Hindu, um, as are all the little shrines along the streets and side streets. And so he does this whole unpackaging on idols and what idolatry does. He continues, and I'm just giving you an overview here just for a moment. 
And then he speaks in chapter 11 about head coverings and he says, good job. That's not a fashion statement. It's an authority conversation. Now, in this passage, he says this, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. I'm reading from the ESV. For better or for worse. The NIV says your meetings do more harm than good. Now can you imagine it will be recorded for all of time and whatever happens to the text in eternity that your meetings, Corinthians, do more harm than good. What an indictment. As the leader of a community, that would probably be amongst the worst things I could ever hear someone say about us. Your meetings do more harm than good. And then he says, in the first place, when you come together. Isn't it amazing how he validates the corporate gathering like we have here? It's in the first place. It's, it's amongst the greatest priorities and joys that we have. You, you know, when Mandela was released in South Africa, just before, as an eldership, we had a very difficult decision to make. As colonialism was undone in Africa, nation upon nation, the Congo, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Angola, communist or socialist governments came in. And many of them were committed to destroying the church because the church represented the oppressor and the oppressor had to be destroyed. And so we had several conversations prayerfully as an eldership team. Our church was about 1,000 at the time. If we were to shut down today, would our church exist, is the question we asked ourselves. Were we so Sunday-centric, and we had a cool Sunday vibe, but were we so Sunday-centric that the church would actually implode and like water in a desert just disappear into nothingness? What would happen if we had to take all of our database of names and peoples and addresses, shred them, what would, what would happen? Would we have a community of Jesus lovers or would it all go down the toilet? That was a very difficult question we had to ask ourselves. Because the true value of the kids, <laughs> listen, they're having more fun than you are, so you're welcome to join them. And so the question we ask ourselves, it is of first importance, of first place. This, I want to argue, it's not just a little optional extra. We, we kind of throw it in as a dessert at the end of the meal when it suits me. I don't mind a little bit of calories. I don't mind a nice chocolate with, with a chocolate sauce, caramel kind of dribbled over it. But it's not really the meat and potatoes of my life. Well, well Paul is arguing contrary to that. He said, a first place, a first importance. And then he goes on to describe that when they come together, they eat together. And I think somewhere along the line, and I always run out of time, so I probably won't develop this with any great length. We drifted from the centrality of the table and eating together to at best at being a nip and a sip as a bi-monthly obligation. And we wonder why it carries so little weight. Pause for a moment, just from this text, and we will look at others. He said, when you come together to eat, there are divisions amongst you. He is horrified that the rich are hanging out with the rich. The poor are obligated to be with the poor. The educated are dialoguing together with great philosophy. The uneducated are somewhat embarrassed and awkward as they chat about more normal things. 
The, 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 the politically persuaded are beating a loud drum for their political party persuasion. And I think Christian nationalism has done the church in this country endless harm. Feeding this narrative. Us and them. We who are the body of Christ are not male or female, Paul says. Jew or Gentile. Rich or poor. Educated or uneducated. In fact, he goes a little bit further and he says, can you believe it? That when you come together to eat, everyone, or at least the rich, bring their little uh, picnic basket of goodies and eat by themselves while those people who are hungry have to sit watching. Can you believe this? So not only did they eat every time they gathered, but this kind of economic sectarianism was destroying the church and was blowing the church apart in a thousand directions. Now you would say, oh, that would never happen. So we plant our church, and I'll tell the story in just a moment. And uh, there's a handful of us at the end of July, beginning of August 2017. Within about six weeks, there are 40 people, mostly students, coming around for dinner. Some came because it was a free meal. Some people came out of curiosity, and you know because some of you were there. And there were about six couples, I say couples loosely, who provided the food for everyone. Do you know how interesting it was, how quickly they moaned, not all of them, because they had to bring the bulk of the food? Chris, we can't believe this. Just because they're single and college students, does that mean they can't bring food? And I just listened with kind of an inward smile, outwardly very understanding, inwardly thinking, do you understand how your heart has been exposed? That's what happened here. We're going to have our food, and if you don't have any, suck eggs, buddy. <laughs> and then to make it worse, to make it worse, he says, you get drunk. So the idea that there was no wine, I've never got drunk on grape juice. I have got drunk on wine. B.C. Yeah, B.C. <laughs> See, so, so, so this was a meal that they broke bread together and they drank wine together. And I'm not insensitive. I'm not allowed to drink alcohol at the moment with my heart. So I'm not insensitive to those who can't have. But what I am saying is true to the text. It means something. It represents something. And he says, for heaven's sake, don't get drunk. If you want to eat and do all that, go and do it at home, but not where the sanctified community of Jesus lovers gather because we are the eschatological future. We are the only picture the world has of life at the end of the age and into the new. We're it. It's not worship. Worship is way cooler in the marketplace, way more creative. My son said to me the other day, why do all of our songs sound the same? I think they do. I think you could play G and sing every song. The buildings are cooler. No, the thing that we offer as a picture of all things is a community eating together. In our brokenness, we celebrate the work of the cross through Jesus and we present this incredible, forgiving, graceful community of love and kindness and generosity. Now, our story very quickly. Why does it matter? Because I want you to understand where we've come from. Most of you in the room don't know it, and so forgive me those of you who do. Very briefly, 
It was towards the end of 2016, early 2017, the Spirit of God began to speak to me about creating a new community. And I said, Lord, you are nuts. Now, forgive me, I, I, I do have a pretty real walk with Jesus, and I, and I do hear his voice, so, but not all the time. I wish I was like 100% success rate. But it was one of those times where I felt God's inner audible voice, and I knew he was laughing at me. And he said, I want you to start another community. And I said, you nuts. Church planting, which is the language I used then, I use different language now, um, is for the young. It's full of energy and zeal and life and probably a little bit of ambition, a whole bunch of pride. And um, I, I said, I'm too old. I, I, I was 56, 57 at the time. No can do, homeboy. No can do. And uh, God just laughed. And, and I knew I'm in trouble. So I said, all right. You know, when you negotiate, remember when you try to do that with your parents? Except God doesn't budge, he just smiles. And you realize whatever you're negotiating isn't going anywhere anytime soon. So I said, all right, as long as we, you don't ask me to get a school hall, get a band, and follow the boomer formula. Guaranteed 150, 200 people within a little bit, a little bit of time. It's doable. So I said, what can we do? So I thought, well, the best way to do is to go back to the text. So out comes Acts chapter 2 from verse 36 to 47. Those of you who don't know what happens, it's the beginnings of the church. It's her in a fledgling beauty. It is her like, um, uh, I don't know, a little, my little granddaughter or something with a little bow in her hair and the little frock. And, and they're just running around with a big smile and everyone, ooh, ah. That's who she was in that moment. And two things struck me forcefully. The one was this Peter said, it's for you, your children, and those who are far off. And I said, Lord, I know how to do Boomer Church. I've been doing it for a long, long time. In May, Meryl and I have been doing this for 40 years. And I have to tell you, I love Jesus more today, and I love his church more today than I ever have. You are beautiful. I'm not unaware after 40 years. You name it, I've seen it. You name it, I've been accused of it. But you are beautiful. Because you're made in his image and his likeness. You're a mirror reflecting him. Yes, you've got the stains of mud on your face because you've played in the dirt and the dust of our selfish preoccupations. But then he comes with his precious blood and he cleanses all of that off. And this beautiful girl emerges once more. You can't get discouraged by the muck and the mire. Because you know behind that, it's but an instant of cleansing that the cross offers. Behind that is this beautiful bride who will be without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. You and me, without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. That's what we will be one day. How can we be discouraged for a fleeting moment? The nice little frock is covered with dirt. Just a moment. That beautiful bride emerges. This is for you, for your children. I said, Lord, could it be? T was eight, 17 at the time. Dana was 20, 28 at the time, but her and Stu were in a church in town. <laughs> and I said, Lord, there's a massive exodus of millennials and Gen Zers from church. The statistics are overwhelmingly scary in deconstruction of faith and community. And I said, Lord, could it be? If it is, you have to do it because I have no idea. Honestly, 
I have no idea how to engage with most of you. I stumble and stutter my way through as a father who loves you. That's the best I have to offer you. I said, okay. It's for you, your children, and those who are far off. And I thought, who are those who are far off? Not just the global gospel, which I'm in love with, as you know, but locally, and two groups came to mind, those who have fallen out of love with the church. And I thought, Lord, what if we create a community where people can fall in love with the church again? I don't mind whether it's you visit here once or a month, six months, and then you, I don't mind. It doesn't matter to me. But that you encounter something so authentically Jesus-orientated and so in love with him and with community that it's contagious. It leaks its way into your soul. That would be worth the while. I don't have tricks. I don't have formulas. Those who are far away, who've walked away from the church. And please know, I do understand. I've been sued in the L.A. courts. I've had people sit as my, uh, standing against me as congregants who I loved, who had in our home. They sat at my table. We went on vacation together, and something shifted in their hearts. We were exonerated. Judge said, you've basically done nothing wrong. But to sit there and listen to them lie was traumatic. Please don't tell me, oh, Chris, you haven't experienced what I have. But the bride is a bath away from beauty. Purity, holiness, without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. Have you ever wondered what you will look like in heaven? Have you ever wondered you? Wouldn't you like to meet the perfect you? Hi, my name's Chris. I'm the old guy. Boy, am I glad to meet the new guy. Those who have fallen away or those who are far away, those who've been hurt by the church and drifted away, and then the LBGDQ community. I'm not affirming, but I love those men and women. I don't, cannot imagine anything as traumatic as living in some of the conditions they've had to live, and the church has never been a safe place to wrestle with their own sexuality. See, my, that might not be my challenge, I have mine, but mine isn't more acceptable or less acceptable than theirs. Surely we can find a way under the blessing of Christ to wrestle with our issues and life challenges together. And then I read this. Are you still with me? Yeah. I haven't got very far. And then... <coughs> oh, John Mark, I wish I could preach like you. It's just like all written there. I'm such a disaster. <laughs> and I read this 42 to 47 over and over and over and over again. And then it dawned on me of everything that that church did. Submitted, devoted to teaching, praise, looked after the poor, favor amongst the people, etc., etc. One thing occurred three times. Only one. Verse 42 they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And every church historian, theologian will tell you that was a meal. Doesn't mean what we're doing is wrong. It just is what that is. Secondly, they broke bread in their homes. Not just publicly, but in their homes. And thirdly, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And it hit me like a two by four. 
the way forward is around the table doing life together. It's not a, well, do you attend a small group? That's not the conversation. It's who is the table community, the people that you eat with, that you are transparent with, that you and I wrestle life with. Who is what the text asks us. You see, if we look at the biblical overview, dear friends, the biblical precedent is clear from Genesis chapter 2, 3, all the way to Revelation 19 and 21. Food is the single vertebra that if you read it, that way, it's fabulous. You look at the trajectory of how food was pivotal to the Jewish, Judeo-Christian story. We're way too dependent upon the pulpit. Listen, I love teaching. But we're way too dependent on it. The reformers replaced mass with the pulpit. Good, yes. Restored the power of the text. Restored the authority of preaching. Bad, the table got sidelined to a nip and a sip. That's not what my Bible teaches. My Bible says that is the central space. First of all, when you gather, eat together. They devoted themselves to breaking of bread. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together. The Old Covenant is full of the Pesach, the Passover, and the Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of the Tabernacle, Yom Kippur, Purim, all of those beautiful, beautiful feasts. Jesus did so much around the table. I want to marinate. I'm sorry I'm saying the same thing over and over from different angles, but I want to marinate. See, if, if, your church, if you have no church background, I guess subconsciously you'll think it's a sermon and a mic'd up guitar. That really is church. Or if your background is maybe mega church or something else, that would be the similar conclusion. But I don't think that's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches a healthy, robust, multiplying church is a church that does life together around the table. We ate together until COVID closed us down. We had no place to eat. Then when we moved in here, we were asked out of preference and honor to the breweries not to eat together every Sunday night. Or we would. I believe in it with all my heart. And, and folks, it's not a potluck. I have people say, oh, no, no, our church does potlucks too. Potlucks <coughs> nauseate me. <laughs> you know what I mean? You take the buns from last night's barbecue that you don't use. Oh, haven't we got something left over from groceries the other night? No, it is a culinary feast. It represents Jesus. The marriage potluck of the lamb. No, no, the marriage supper of the lamb. It's where you bring your best, you take your best recipe and your best food and you pour yourself into the best of your culinary ability and you present this meal that's good enough for Jesus, for his church. And we eat together, salivating at the privilege of it being an extraordinary culinary experience. I watch when we eat together because I want to see the, a, the visual disbelief of, hmm, I don't think that's what churches do. And then two, dang, this is good. Now listen, when Caleb does his first enchiladas, that's what I'm saying right there. 
the pride and the joy of, this is the first time I've done this, and it is good. I was sick this week. Sadly, I had two horrible weeks, but we were going to have table community in our house, and I got my sauces ready. I was going to do a Thai chicken curry, coconut milk. It was there. I bought my special chicken, and it was ready for action, and then I went down again. See, it's, it's, it's a feast. When I watched on a story between you and me, I'm wrestling with all of this, and I find Chef's Kitchen or Chef's Table on Netflix. And I start watching it, and I'm literally jumping out, up and down in a non-TV TV room. It's a room set aside, but we don't really have a TV. <coughs> so I'm looking at my computer, and I'm jumping up and down. This is it. And I see the guy sitting there, and he's making this dish, and he's just sprinkling it. He's sautéing it with some, and it's like, Psh! and I'm saying, this is it. The, the, this is it. If I could, if I was confident enough, I would have a, a, community, a space where we would have a kitchen. And on a Sunday, we'd cook together, we would eat together, and then we would worship together. Because that's there. That's in the text. Isn't it amazing how often Jesus, what he did, one theologian said, he did it at a meal, on the way to a meal, or on the way from a meal. For those of you who are more biblical literate, there's a story, and I'm sorry for those who might not know the Emmaus story, but it's of two men who are leaving Jerusalem devastated. For whatever reason, the doctor writes this in his account. And they're arguing, they can't believe it, this guy's let them down, doubt is ravaging their soul, there's uncertainty and pain and disappointment, we've given up everything to follow him, what on earth's happening? And Jesus gently sidles up to them, yo, hi, how you doing? Yeah, cool. You won't believe it, man. Say, oh, what happened? Where have you been? You haven't been in Jerusalem? This guy, Jesus of Nazareth guy, he he was supposed to be a prophet and, and he died. And Jesus just lets it all unfold. And then he pretends He's walking as they go home. He pretends he's walking on. And I say, yeah, yeah, where are you sleeping tonight? Well, I don't really have a place. Well, come. And it said, as he took the bread and he broke it, their eyes opened. And they're like, wow, wow. This is, look, what is this? It's like sourdough bread. I don't want to be irreligious. It's like sourdough bread. I like it. I mean, what, what, what's, is there anything here? like a trick? Is this a magician thing? That you just slip the, the ace out from your cards? And yet, in this, there is sacredness. In this, his presence. Last Sunday night, I was so deeply moved. There was a young lady sitting on the side over there. Dana taught a consecration, great word. And we come to the table, and this young girl just starts weeping. Why? It's a piece of bread, a little sip of grape juice, wine, or grape juice. Or, you know, if you're gluten-free, we have you covered. (laughs) No, because he's here. He's chosen to give us, I'm I'm leaving all my stuff because we've run out of time, But, but because he's chosen the simplicity of a meal that almost everyone can afford. And he said, do this in memory of me, because if you do it in remembrance of me, I will be there. I will be amongst you. I will open your eyes so that you could see who you are and see who I am. 
And it's a moment of great sacred mirror where we look at ourselves and we, we see ourselves for who we are and say, oh God, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm limping with shame and guilt. I'm carrying the stain of my disobedience and my rebellion. I stumble and fall oh so often and yet as I take this bread and I break it, somehow I'm reminded. It's not transubstantiation that the Catholics offered us with all due respects. But there is something about his presence here to bring wholeness and healing, kindness and goodness. So when we eat, the early church discovered do this in remembrance of him. Eat the meal, but do it in a way that allows him to break in on us. Eat together. Share what you've got. No division, no segregation, no separation. Come and bring your food and let's eat together. And in that space, we remember him. In that space, it's personal reflection. Remember we said that right at the beginning? God, this is who I am. I am so sorry, or I am so grateful. Every morning, I write in my journal, good morning, Father, thank you. And I just write the things that I'm thankful for, and it's never short, because that's what this is. It's personal reflection. And then thirdly, it's eschatological anticipation. It's anticipation of what is to come. He said, eat this until he comes. Someone said, and, and Mike, the quote's there, but forgive me for butchering the quote. Communion is not exclusively a time of penance. It's a time of celebration because it's the third day. It's Sunday that they ate together. And it's on Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead. And on Sunday, the final enemy, death itself, was conquered. And we, dear friends, are the beneficiaries of a resurrected Jesus who is the inspiration of our hope. Why is it, I land, at a time of such uncertainty, such anxiety, such fear, such disappointment, that we who follow Jesus are not anchored by those emotions? Because he is risen. The tomb is empty. The Russian Christians, in the face of the most dastardly persecution, would meet each other and they would raise their hands and they would say, he's risen. They can kill us today, but he is risen. They can take my house and my property, but he is risen. And our eschatological hope, dear friends, because of communion, is that he has risen. No matter what you are facing, no matter the challenges and obstacles that are before you every day, I want to say to you, He is risen. Why do we come to communion? Because we remember Him. Because we reflect on the condition of our own soul and we anticipate the hope to which He has called us, the great resurrection of the dead. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that a first of all? Isn't that why we should do it regularly? I pray that somewhere, sometime, we can eat together often or at least all, all of the time or at least often. Because to me, that is Christian community. That's the place I want the unbeliever who's a, a friend of mine, is a super atheistic LA Times journalist, finds every opportunity he can to have a go at me. That's okay. Because I want to bring him to where the brothers and sisters eat together 
in the candious celebration of brokenness to wholeness, death to life. I invite you this evening. Caton, can I have you? Has he decided to leave me or forsake me? I want us to apply those three processes just for a moment before we come to the table. One, remembrance. There we go. Remembrance, Jesus, for what you've done for me. Now, I know some of you have drifted from the faith. I know that some of you have maybe never been in faith, but you do know what Jesus has done. And the humility of a piece of bread with a little cup of wine, can God do something with it? Yes, he can. As secondly, there is personal reflection. This is who I am. This is where I am right now. And then thirdly, breathe in the liberty and the power of the eschatological anticipation. He is risen. He is coming back soon. Would you take a moment before we invite you in to just let those words filter their way into your soul?